Season 4 of Beyond the Plate is presented by Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at the National Mango Board. Did you know that mangoes are the most commonly consumed fruit in the world? And they're also available all year round. Here's what that means. Every day is mango season. Pretty cool. We have six different varieties here in the U.S. And something else, everybody, as we all discover all the different varieties and versatility of mangoes, it's actually no surprise that chefs have taken note to this too. You see them on all different kinds of cuisines menus from sweet to savory. So they're a great complement to many dishes. Case in point, they're actually on the very menu of the restaurant that this upcoming conversation took place in. Anyhow, I always love mangoes, as you may know if you've heard this before, but here's what I'm loving them in right now. I get these mango and sticky rice spring rolls. I don't get them regularly. They're a treat. I get them at the store. Starts with a T, ends with an S, has a Raider Joe in the middle. Check them out. They're one of their highest selling items at this store. Delicious. But here's something else pretty cool. The mango industry empowers farmers in regions all around the world who for multiple generations have been growing mangoes. Anyhow, there's endless ways to enjoy them. So if you need a little mango inspiration or want to learn more about the National Mango Board, check out mango.org or you can follow them on social media at Mango Board. National Mango Board, we thank you. It's become kind of part of our bit is like not just putting something so simple and clean. And, you know, when you go to restaurants and have like a beautiful plate of food, that's just like it's well executed. There's nothing you can say negative about it, but you don't walk away like really remembering anything. You're not like, wow, how do they think to do that? I think like more of my bit is to celebrate like fun flavors that I like come across by reading about things around the world and such. Just one unexpected thing that kind of balances it in a way that you wouldn't really think of. Welcome to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey with food and their passion for giving back. I'm Cappy, and in this week's episode, we sat with Chef Stephanie Eisert. Stephanie is one of the hardest working chefs that we know, and many other chefs will say that about Steph. We get into that in this episode. She was actually born in Chicago, but moved out to the East Coast uh, in Connecticut uh, with her family when she was very young and found her way back to Chicago. Anyhow, she's the chef partner of Girl and the Goat restaurant in Chicago, as well as Little Goat, Duck Duck Goat, Cabra, which is goat in Spanish. She heads up Goat Group Catering and the forthcoming Girl in the Goat restaurant in Los Angeles. She was a Top Chef winner. She was a fan favorite on Top Chef. She's won James Beard Awards. She's won Food & Wine Magazine's Best New Chefs. She's won Iron Chef for Food Network. And her accolades go on and on. Uh, she gives back with her staff. She does a lot of work with Share a Strength, Don't Get Hungry. She's one of these chefs that when you go to these walk around events, she's actually there most of the time behind her table talking to people and interacting. Anyhow, I'm going to stop here. This is a great and exciting conversation. So please enjoy it as we go beyond the plate with Chef Stephanie Izard. All right. So. You're busy. Chefs are busy. And I want to say like it's widely known in the industry that you're one of like the harder and chefs are hardworking. I get it. But I feel like it's widely known that you're truly one of the hardest working chefs. I've heard that from other chefs 
from media people. So like with that, like right now, someone's probably trying to make a reservation at Girl and a Goat because it's booked out so far. Little Goat's probably pretty busy right now with breakfast. Someone's going into work because they ate dinner at Duck Duck Goat last night and they're like, I need to go back to try everything I didn't try. We're sitting at Cabra, your newest Peruvian inspired restaurant. People are prepping. You're in the middle of opening LA. So, but you're here. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Thanks for stressing me out with all of that. Well, I was going to say, my question, do you feel like, like you need to be somewhere else always? I do. I just was thinking, a lot of people actually make that comment to me. I actually had a chef and this, it was really nice. I was doing a dinner, um, a charity dinner, and he said that he was in conversation with another chef and they were actually talking about the fact that I work really hard and work all the time, which is nice to know that someone's, they're not talking negatively about you and maybe there was other parts of the conversation they didn't clue me in on but I don't know lately I think because I also have a son and I want to make sure I'm you know enjoying life I keep thinking to myself I'm like is that really the legacy that I want like oh wow I worked harder than anyone else for my entire life and now I'm so tired so I think now it's trying to really set up everybody that works with me I have amazing people that work with me everywhere I mean there's Uh, five sous chefs at each one of the restaurants. There's five managers at each one of the restaurants. Justin, who you've met before, is sort of a floating sous chef. I have a sous chef that's at the United Center just working on the taco project. There's great people all over the place. And I think um, it's important now that I'm getting older. I mean, I am, you know, I kind of forget that now I'm like sort of when I had chefs that I looked up to or that I worked for, I'm like that old now. I need to get everybody to be able to really do what they need to do and run the restaurants the way that they need to be run. So then when LA opens, everything will be smooth back here in Chicago. And also, so, you know, at some point I can not be the hardest working chef in the industry anymore. I can just kind of, I can still work hard, but I don't have to, I was cooking on the line at DuckDuckGoat on Saturday and I was totally fine doing it. I like cooking on the line, but it hurts my body now, you know, Um, my wrist is actually all messed up from sauteing. So I just need to try to figure out I think part of it is just that maybe I don't have things structured well enough. And so I have to be artist working. Do you still like restructure? Is that like a constant thing to be more efficient? Yeah, I think it's, um, well, the the powers that be in Boca land, Boca is the restaurant group I work for, of course. They keep talking about layers, like layers in an onion. Like I need to have better layers that work in my little goat world to make sure that everything's supported. And I don't know, they think I should be out gallivanting around and skipping around town and just having a jolly old time while all these layers are taking care of things, I guess, Um, which is never going to be how I am. But yeah, it's really hard, I think, when you're growing. And I, I remember talking to some chefs when I was opening my second restaurant, saying that opening number two was really hard. And then once you got to three and four, it actually just got easier and easier. I heard that. And for a minute, I kind of got it because I thought, all right, well, if you can't be everywhere, then you kind of don't need to be anywhere Mm. is one way you could look at it. You know, if I can't be a duck, duck, goat, the people at Little Goat could think I'm there and I could just be, you know, out shopping. But (laughs) (laughs) I don't like shopping. (laughs) So this is interesting. I usually like end. I haven't done it in a while because... People take it one way or the other, I feel like. But the legacy, I, I, I often end with a legacy question. Like, what do you want your legacy to be? But you actually brought that up as a response to one of the first questions. So <laughs> if you don't want, let's let's start with the I was trying the to end. just shorten the whole interview. All right, done. <laughs> let's, uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's finish. So what would you want your legacy to be? Like, if it's not, Stephanie was the, mo- the hardest working chef, which, you know, is a good thing at the end of the day. But like, what would you want people to know you as for... I don't know. I think I'm still trying to figure that out, which is, I guess, maybe why I'm not 
100% ready not to be here all the time. I feel like I still don't quite understand myself as a chef, or maybe I always am looking at other chefs and comparing myself and thinking, not looking at the successes that I have, but maybe looking at the things that I am not successful at and feel like more important that I need to like fill those holes instead of just continuing to work on the things that I'm good at. Wow, this is going to be like a deep thoughts thing for me. I'm going to walk away from this chat and really feel like you've the helped first, me mentally. The first one I did with Rachel, she, like she thought it was going to be like, what's your favorite color? And we walked away. She's like, Jesus Christ, Cappy, that was like therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I like her favorite color is red. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, no, that's interesting. I mean, that's interesting. Uh, but I feel like that's a good way to look at it. I asked Thomas Keller about like perfection. He's like, well, if you, if something's perfect, like what else do you have to do? You know, he's like, we're always striving for. Right. I mean, he's much closer to perfection than anybody else. Uh, it depends, I guess, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. So along the legacy front, if I were to ask a sous chef, we could take Justin or any of them three words that they would use to describe you. How, what three words do you think they would use? Hmm. Um, I almost grabbed this I know. Gentleman. I feel like we should ask Justin what he thinks of me. I'm kind of curious what other people think of me, actually. I feel like lately because I... Justin! Um, I could text him to come over here. I feel like lately because I've been so stressed with everything that's going on, I hope that a new word for me isn't grumpy. <laughs> um, but I feel like it kind of could be. I mean, they probably would say hardworking too just because I'm always around. I don't know. I hope they say I'm fun because I used to be at one point. <laughs> Back in the day when I had one restaurant. Yeah. I remember um, my, my CDC here, um, Jeremy, when he was still at Little Goat, I can't remember the exact verbiage he used, but he complimented once. We were working on a special or something and he said something like, it's so, he like put something in. I was like, oh, all it needs is this. And it was like this one little ingredient addition I needed. It pulled it all together. It was kind of just what, and he was like, it's, I want to get in your brain sometime and understand like how you just can think of the perfect thing that is going to cool. make it work. And I just remember that moment of, that was like the nicest thing any of my sous chefs had ever said to me that he kind of saw the, my style and kind of understood it a little bit and appreciated it. So yeah, that's cool. And Hi, Justin. Hi, Harry. <laughs> Do you mind if I put you on the spot? <laughs> He's asking me what, if he was to ask one of my sous chefs, like three words to describe me, what words it would be. And I said, well, lately I've been really stressed, so I'm hoping it's not just grumpy. But I couldn't think of what, how you guys would describe me. If like me. we were having a drink at a bar and I said, what three words like, you would you use me. to describe Steph? What would you say? It's an adjective, dancing. <laughs> Dancing. <laughs> okay, good. And any two more? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I'm just trying to think of all the fun things. I mean, it's like, well, I, see, at least like he's the thinking of the fun side. <laughs> Do you think that so would fun be one of the three words to describe me, or it yeah. used to be? No, it still is. How about like if I said, "Give me one word to describe Steph in the kitchen," without getting fired? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard, right? In the kitchen, I know. <laughs> like, I don't know. She's just there. Yeah, always there. Oh, that's, always that's there. good. That's, <laughs> that's good. That's good. I like yeah. it. All right. Always 
That's you're, you're off the hook. You're off the hook. Dancing fun <laughs> and always there. Dancing fun and always there. <laughs> She's so fun. She's always there dancing. <laughs> Let's turn it into a <laughs> sentence. <laughs> Justin's a pretty good dancer, too. He used to travel around with me to do different events around the country. And there's always these chef after parties and things like that. And he has some sweet dance moves he used to bust out. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> good to see you. All right. You grew up in Connecticut? Yeah. I was born in Chicago, but grew up in Connecticut. You were? Yeah. I don't know if I knew that. I was born at Evanston Hospital. My so was I. You were? Yes. I was born way before. What year were you born in? Uh, 80. Okay. 1976, Evanston Hospital. There's a great hot dog stand right there. Not that we would have gone when we were like a week old, but anyway, it's called Mustard's Last Stand. And oh, nice. It's delicious. I mean, I, my relatives still live in Evanston and like all different parts of Winneka, things like that in the suburbs. I grew up, my mom grew up in the North Shore and my dad grew up in the city. And so my whole family's from Chicago. And then my dad got transferred. He was working for the Tribune got transferred to New York for some reason. On my first birthday, we moved to Connecticut. And then he changed jobs. We never moved back. Huh. I did not know that. Yep. So I'm in Chicago and I just kind of left for a while and came back when I was 20, what 21. Did he, what did he do for the Tribune? He was in marketing and ad sales. My grandfather was the president of the Chicago Tribune, but this was like, my dad had the job kind of separate from that. I don't know, like, and it just happened to be working there too. Interesting. Um, but yeah, a whole Tribune, a whole Chicago family. Yeah, I love it. How would you describe like your house as a kid, like growing up? Um, I'm like now, um, it's actually not that messy. I was just gonna say messy, but I've been very like overly hyper-focused on cleaning up Ernie's puzzles and such. Only to have him destroy them <laughs> <Right>. again <laughs> next playtime. <laughs> Our house growing up, like how it looks or just how it was, it was... My sister and I, we had, you know, lots of fun stuff everywhere, very creative. I just like picture, we had like this, one of those plastic horses that's kind of got the little, you can't buy them anymore because I'm sure they were very dangerous. It's like a fake horse that's on this little stand and you can sit on it and ride this fake horse thing. But we would take our giant bean bags and put it on top of it and be, pretend that we were like Little House on the Prairie Wagon. Um, things like that. We were always like very creatively playing and setting up sort of imaginative things all over the house. Yeah. We played restaurant all the time too. Really? Yeah, we Ella would. and Leo are playing with this like plastic food truck they have right now. Oh, that's and awesome. Like, just keep putting them in front of that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we never had, um, I guess we might've had a little fake kitchen set, but we would actually, when we were like, probably when I was eight maybe and my sister was 10, we would each have a friend over and two of us would be the restaurateurs and two of us would be the guests. Oh my gosh. And if you were the restaurateur, we actually like wrote, like wrote designed menus, but the only thing you could really get was like the chicken cordon bleu that we put in the toaster oven from the freezer. Um, we didn't actually like go, my mom didn't let us just go in the kitchen and do a whole bunch of cooking, but. So you just like had a one, one item restaurant and yep. like perfected it. But we it. would set it up. Like <laughs> we would go use my mom's silver and set up a whole thing. Why There's, were you into Like how did this. I have no this... idea. It was so bizarre. I was mean, anyone my... in the family, like in the industry? No. We used to go out to dinner a lot. I mean, my parents took my sister and I, every Friday night we went to this one Italian restaurant, or maybe that was like on Saturdays. And then there was a pizza place we went to regularly, but, and then this restaurant Gates, I remember that's still open, I think in um, New Canaan in Connecticut, where there was this black bean soup that my mom was obsessed with. I remember she asked for the recipe and they gave her one that made like 22 quarts, like <laughs> as our recipes are. And she made where she was like, whoa black bean soup for the next month. But yeah, we went out to, I think as kids, we went out to eat a lot more than maybe other kids did at the time. I feel like it's become much more normal if people go out to dinner all the time. I don't yeah. know. So if it's like five or 6 p.m., like dinner time at your house, 
where is like 10 year old Stephanie? Like is someone yelling to come to the dinner table or what's going on? Um, it kind of depended on the day. Well, my sister and I were swimmers, so we'd be just getting back from swim practice and my mom would be cooking and she had to actually put a lock on the, uh, on the cupboard because I was really hungry because I was a swimmer. Like, so she, I would always hide in there, eat snacks while she was cooking dinner. And so eventually they put a lock on it so we couldn't hide in the cupboard <laughs> eating. Um, That's funny. But sometimes I would be over cooking with my mom. She said I also, when I was really young, would just stick my hands over and just grab spoonfuls or like a handful of butter and just start eating it while she was cooking, which really <laughs> explains girl and the goat at least and duck duck goat a lot. And then I think I was, yeah, I was probably around hovering around my mom in the kitchen because I remember I was in charge of getting everybody to come down for dinner, my sister and my dad, and she wanted me to go upstairs. But instead, like I can scream really loud. I'm not going to do it right now, but um, I just would scream Dinner! at the top of my lungs. And she, I can still hear her voice being like, I could have done that myself, boo. Um, <laughs> she called me boo. Yeah. And just setting the table. And I think I was most often helping my mom. And at some point there was like, the tables turned a little bit and she, my sister and I started doing a lot more of the cooking while my mom just kind of like about. hung out. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So did you, did you help her? Or you just like how old were you when you started doing um, that? I mean, I think probably it was like when we were, when I was like eight or nine is when we started helping more and more. Um, like my mom did mushu pork was one of the ones I remember being really hands-on. She had her friend, Mrs. Cole come over. They would make mandarin pancakes. We still use that recipe at Duck, Duck, Goat for the mandarin pancakes. And my sister and I would be pulling the tiger lily buds in half and like cleaning all these dried mushrooms, helping with that. There's like certain dinners that I remember us having really often or regularly that I remember what my part of making it was. I remember like standing over the sink and cleaning shrimp and all sorts of things. I guess it was probably more so being my mom's sous chef, I guess, for a while. And then when we got a little bit older, we kind of took over. So when you were teaching the cooks at DuckDuckGo to make those pancakes, are you like, don't fuck it up? <laughs> no, I thought to myself, I can't believe my mom did this. Is that crazy? Dinner. Yeah. They're kind of a pain in the butt. Huh. Um, but I think her and her friend just stood around and drank wine and like, you know, you're not stressed. They're making like a dozen or two dozen of them. Whereas like we're making 300 of them a day, yeah. you know, it's kind of different. Were you a picky eater? Or it sounds like you ate, ate different things. I wasn't a picky eater. I definitely before when I was smaller I remember sometimes I would just sit there I don't know why I didn't have a huge appetite when I was like really little and I remember sitting at the table and my mom being like you're not leaving until you finish that plate but then it starts to get cold and you just have this big plate of cold food in front of you and it was a whole bit whereas my sister would scarf down her plate in like five seconds and now you know the tables have definitely turned like my sister's a much lighter eater and I'm just like yeah I don't know I I was a little bit shy and a little bit reserved and like not a huge eater and stuff when I was really little and then it kind of all I don't think that the way that I am now is definitely reflective of how I was when I was little. Yeah. Is there anything that you don't care for that we may be surprised to know like today? I can't really think of anything that I truly don't like. I don't like little fish with bones in them. I'm not going to eat smelt. I just don't like, I remember going to a restaurant and a chef friend like sent out, they're like, oh, we sent you the smelt that we just got in. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> I don't know what to do. There's like 50 of them in a basket uh, fried. And so I was like trying to find ways to eat, partially eat some of them and hide them around the yeah. table. So nobody would notice I didn't eat them. There's like um, a smelt under the table, like next to the gum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be a good idea. Thank you. Next time you're with me. Honey bones I don't like. And then I had it for a while. I didn't like hominy just because I have always been obsessed with chickpeas. When I was younger, I just would buy a can of chickpeas, open it up and just sit there and eat it out of the can as a snack. They're so tasty. Ernie loves them too. My son. Is he picky? He's pickier than I would like him to be. Yeah. He's like getting pickier. He's yeah, getting anyway, pickier. Once I bought a can of hominy and started eating that and I didn't realize I thought it was chickpeas and I was like, oh, 
Um, but now I like comedy now that I understand it. But yeah, Ernie, he's a good eater in certain cases. So I took him to Duck Duck Goat yesterday and he loves that. He actually like took the little hoisin and put it on his scallion oh. pancake and was eating it, which was super cute. He likes the steamed buns. He likes the fried rice. He doesn't like mushrooms, which I think he inherited from his dad, which is a bummer. Um, cause I love mushrooms. Maybe he'll get there later and he'll eat at little goat. He eats the pancakes. He eats the, the only sausage he'll eat is little goat sausage and he'll declare that he won't eat maple sausage anywhere else. Do you cook a lot for him or is it mainly like coming to the restaurants? Mainly coming to the restaurants. But I just was thinking this morning, I just need to, I mean, I don't have time to just whip up a batch of sausage in my spare time at home, but I can very easily just take a couple patties home to have them to make for breakfast because now he's on a kick of eating like popsicles and <laughs> that's it. I was like, Ernie, you need more, you know, I was trying to explain to him that he needs more like fuel for his brain than like a sugar-free popsicle I for know. breakfast. I need to, I like freak out at that, right? Now. I mean, ours are younger than Ernie, but. Ella eats, like <laughs> she eats, and Leo eats, but like fifty percent of it, like come, he chews it and spits it out, and chews it and spits it out. Like he'll try everything. I'm like, dude, you need to eat, and yeah. but I also need to realize I need to settle down because he'll eat eventually. He'll eat eventually, you know? I think it's like important. I think Ernie does the best. He actually eats better when he's eating with his babysitters because he probably knows that if he just like freaks out, I'll just give him a popsicle and be like, whatever. Whereas like his babysitter, Ellen, is not going to give him a popsicle. She's just going to give him dinner. And like he'll go and sit around the table with her family and they all have, he eats mashed potatoes and eats like meatloaf and like eats whatever her mom makes for dinner because I think he's sitting around a whole family eating that for dinner. So yeah, it just kind of just depends on his mood and the situation. So hopefully he'll just kind of snap out of it. I don't know. But some nights I put like five different dinners in front of him until he finally, then he's just like, eats a bowl of Cheerios. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> winning. <laughs> what was your first real job in the food world? I worked at the Olive Garden. Was that was your first job? Yeah. I mean, I guess, well, I guess when I was in college before the Olive Garden, I worked in the food hall or in the, you know, at the dorm, but I mostly you, you sat went at to the, Mich I went to Michigan. Michigan. So I was in the Markley dorm. It's like where everybody from the East coast, they put them all in the same dorm, <laughs> um, just to get them away from everybody else. <laughs> um, and I was like stationed at the door to stop people from taking things out of like the food hall. I'm like, I'm not going to tell a football player he can't take whatever he wants. I don't care. Of course people can take apples. Like I didn't care. And then on the weekends, I would be back in the kitchen there, which I just remember wearing like a, um, like a little hairnet over my hair and like just replenishing some of the food. And I think I thought it was really fun to like be replenishing the, the buffet and things like that. But I wasn't, I don't think there was a lot of cooking involved. I think it was like mixing some things. And then I worked at the Olive Garden while I was in college. Is there a dish you ate at Olive Garden that? I'm probably getting like 50 pounds eating the breadsticks. Oh. Yeah. Um, then like, they started having the servers have to like buy breadsticks. Like you had to, you would take like two dozen breadsticks off your paycheck and then you had to like count down how many you ate. You know what I mean? Maybe like, hey, hey, like Sue, do you have an extra breadstick on your thing? Can I eat it? Okay, thanks. Oh my God. Um, it was like the whole bit because otherwise, I mean, when it was a little slower, everybody just stood back there and ate all the breadsticks. But the hosts also like make the salad there. So I was plating all the salads when I first started. And they have a picture and like actually measure and it's exactly like two croutons per person, one slice of tomato per person, one pepperoncini. It's very controlled and interesting. It's like things I still remember. Do you use any of that today still to an extent? Um, I mean, I think portion control is something that I didn't want to have to be as thorough on, but then like you realize, oh, okay, food cost is a thing. And just because you show somebody they should put about this much in, 
doesn't mean they're going to. So we definitely have gotten much tighter on actually measuring things. You know, see our cooks like pull out things in little portion bags or use portion size scoops on the line. And it kind of takes a little bit of, you feel like it takes a little artistry out of it. But at the same time, trying to have consistent product. I was at Girl and the Goat expediting on like two nights ago. It was super busy for like this one hour of time. I thought I was going to like lose my mind. I'm like holding a stack of 50 tickets in my hand. All this craziness is happening. It was just one of those kind of nights. And this one station in particular was just super busy. And I could tell that the this one dish, our goat satays, just weren't looking as nice as they did during tastings. They were putting up like 25 of them. And I just was thinking to myself, I was like, gosh, being a chef is like, you're watching people take your art, you know, or your creativity and kind of just like, put it out like crap sometimes, you know? And it's a terrible, terrible feeling. And so it's like our job to figure out how we can stop that from happening and make sure that the guest gets the original idea. So I, I don't know, so portion control part of it, but then it's just... Did you do anything at that point during service? Yeah, you know, it's just going over and making sure that, let's say like one comes up just not looking quite right. No matter how busy we are, it doesn't matter. I'd rather people wait five extra minutes for a new one. So I just, you know, grabbed one of the satays. I was like, come on, you guys, like, I know that you can do better than this. Give it back and they refire it. Just have to make sure that you never, ever have the mindset of that we're so busy, we're just going to put out whatever. And I would hope that that doesn't happen when I'm not there. Yeah. I was going to ask how, how do your restaurants stay consistent? And that's a good example. But don't you, like before service, don't you do a tasting of like all your sauces or is it like every dish? Yeah, it depends on which restaurant. So Girl on the Goat, we've tasted every dish every day since the day we opened. So, I mean, this is why I have to go to the gym every day and why I, even though I go to the gym every day, I still don't have like a killer, you know, model (laughs) body. Um, We, yeah, we put up one of every dish every day and it's like crazy how something like the green beans, we still like have to work on the consistency of a dish that's been on the menu for nine and a half years. It's like so so nuts. frustrating um but yeah we put up every dish and we like taste everything after we've done a line check so we check everything on the line i think my sous chefs misunderstood that for a moment and we're skipping the line check i was like no they're putting up the dishes to make sure they're cooking accurately that day and it's like another step but we still have to go through the line and make sure all the herbs are fresh and taste all the sauces at little goat there's just way too many things on the menu and it's open all day to do that so and i mean we don't have to put up a fat club like twice a day i mean it's just layers of meat and cheese and stuff on yummy fresh baked bread. I don't want to talk about the fat club too much because we sell too many. It's very stressful, (laughs) especially if that's the station that I work all the time at night. And I'm like, six fat clubs. Oh my goodness. That's a lot of layers to build. Um, But we put up a handful of dishes in the morning and a handful of dishes in the afternoon there. Cabra, we just, Cabra and DuckDuckGo, we both have the same system where we have like a sheet, a tasting sheet. We highlight things that we must taste every day and dishes that we're going to taste that day. We put notes. And if there's a dish that's been constantly a problem, like here there's choclo, which is just a side dish of this like big corn-like, it's like corn, but it's not sweet at all. And it's our simplest dish. It's just choclo, a little bit of cheese, lime juice. But if it's not exactly right, it goes from being so delicious to being just this greasy, seasonless mess. So so who, where do those notes go? We put them on, on the tasting sheet. And then now we have like a little, for Cabra, we found that having a group text amongst the CDC and myself and all the sous chefs, we send little text notes about the tasting. And then at DuckDuckGo, there's like the notes go into the recap. So we have all these different communication tools and it's just making sure that we actually do them every day. I think after a certain amount of time, people feel like, oh, well, everything's great. And that's when it goes downhill. Do you feel, do you take responsibility? Like, so the choco dish, are you like, shit, I need to, we need to figure this out, how to make it delicious every time and keep being consistent? Or do you task your CDC with like, 
a solution, if you will? I think it's been, I just actually met with my CDCs like over the last couple of weeks and I have to like, we're starting these weekly meetings with them and my Jan, my Jan, I don't know what to call him. He's sort of like, he's been my CDC at every opening of the restaurants. Um, we've worked together for like 25 years because we're both really old. Um, and <laughs> you're not 70. I mean, <laughs> I guess we were, we've literally worked together for 20 years though. Really? We started working together in our early twenties. Where yeah. is he now? He now is sort of, he's at DuckDuckGo helping because we just reopened after our little fire. But he's supposed to be sort of my number two and just helping oversee everything. And I like tasked him with coming up with a list of projects. And I think he's finally decided on like what he's, he's going to help just like food costs everywhere. And he helps with butcher stuff everywhere because it's like what he's really good at. But yeah, so we started meeting with all the CDCs just to really try to like drive home what that position means in Goatland because I think it's different in every company and it's like food you have to make sure that the food is consistent every day so yeah now if there's a and I said at the meeting I was like up to this point I will take full blame for anything that's not been good because maybe I haven't been clear about your position Hmm. but here now I'm being clear about your position from now on it's up to you to make sure this happens so in my little creating layers um, so I can go peace out and skip around the neighborhood and enjoy life. Definitely. It's up to them to figure out a way to make things more consistent. That was one of the biggest like things I learned at an early restaurant job. When I was in Miami, I worked for these two, a restaurant tour and a chef who owned this Mediterranean restaurant, more Italian. And it was good. It was really good, but they would look to me cause I worked front of the house, but they knew I had a back of the house background but I would bring things that were issues like on the floor. And this was early in my career and too much. I brought them issues without a solution. And I was like, hey, this Parmesan cheese vessel that we're using isn't great. Or this little boat that we're pouring the broth in table side isn't great. And they're like, I love what you're bringing to us, but I want you to bring us a solution, which I still, I feel like I still use to this day. Like don't go to someone with like 10 problems work to fix the problem. Yeah, we say that in ours. So each restaurant has a recap that we have every night. Um, That's what I wake up in the morning and then just read the recaps and see what kind of went wrong, I guess, or what went really well. Um, Usually what went wrong. And definitely have now said, I'm like, don't just put like issues that happened. Like say, you know, so-and-so, this cook wasn't um, doing this really well. So tomorrow we're going to sit down with them, give them an encouraging conversation and teach them this. You know, just come up with, put the idea for a solution right there. And then I can just comment on the idea and kind of follow through. But yeah, bringing up problems without solutions is not management. That's just complaining, Yeah, really. Yeah. So you mentioned Boca, you know, your restaurants are part of Boca Restaurant Group, which has a lot of restaurants in the city, but they, you, Girl in the Goat was one of the, one of the early ones. So I'm, I'm sure there's like positives and negatives of that. So I'm curious what's hard about being part of like a biggest restaurant group for you. And also on the flip side, like what's great about that? I think for a long time, I was kind of pushing back against it and didn't want to be part of a restaurant group. And Rob and Kevin would totally agree with me. And I think they did not like me as much during that period of time. Like, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, like, gosh, she's so annoying. <laughs> just, I mean, I think that the goat restaurants still do, what do you, what's to say, like march to the beat of our own drum a little bit compared to some of the other Boca restaurants. But if you look at it, all of the restaurants, each chef's restaurants do that. You know, like Jimmy Papadopoulos' restaurant is Jimmy Papadopoulos style. Giuseppe's restaurants are Giuseppe's. Um, Chris Pandel's restaurants are run his way. So we each, each of our part of the restaurant group has a little bit different feel based on the chef, which is really cool. But now 
a good thing is like Boca's trying to, Rob and Kevin have like a few new people they've assigned as like the CFO and the C, I don't know, whatever C something O, there's like three people with different C and an O and this different letter in the middle. Chief blank officers. Chief officers of different portions. There's three of them that they just announced last week that are pretty much, you know, running Boca Restaurant Group, not for them, but like with them. And we have these monthly meetings called Table Talk where all the restaurants come together. And for a little while, for the first like few months of them, it was mostly just focused on the finances of the restaurants. And amongst the chefs, we were talking to the CO people of what we really wanted to get out of these meetings. And just last week, we had a meeting where Gene Cato from Momotaro got up and he actually started talking about how they control their food costs because they've been having a really great food cost. And for a restaurant that serves a lot of fish like that. It's very impressive, their food costs. I jokingly was like, well, it's just really expensive. But if when they actually broke down the menu and I was looking, it's not overpriced. It's, you know, it's priced accordingly to what it should be. But there's just some really smart dishes on the menu. There's a bowl of rice that has a lot of the pieces of fish that are left over, like beautifully put on there with some fun garnishes over the top. So the guest is going to have this delicious bowl of rice with yummy fish on top, not realize that they're really eating fish scraps and saving the food costs. And his like 20 minute spiel about their food costs and all the different practices that they do was like the most useful, like 20 minutes I've spent in a meeting in a long time. And I left there, I was like taking notes and I left all energized and came back. I was like, you guys. And I went in the cooler at Little Goat. I was like, look at those Los Drown scraps. And we started, we made this special for this weekend using all these yummy Los Drown scraps. That's super cool. Yeah, it was really useful. I was like, thank you. Like, that's what I wanted to get out of those meetings. I want to know what awesome practices are being done in the other Boca restaurants that apply to me. So sometimes there might be things that happen at Momotaro that I can't possibly, it doesn't apply to what happens at Little Goat, you know, but that does, that applies everywhere. So I think that the CO chief people are really taking a lot of pride in trying to make Boca Restaurant Group just better as a whole and sort of be able to lean on each other and work as a really great restaurant group. So that's making it a, you know, a huge positive. I don't know. I mean, negatives, it's like, Sometimes people maybe don't want to work. They're like, I don't want to work for a large restaurant group. But I don't think working at any of the goat restaurants, you feel like you're part of a large restaurant group because it's still, you know, more of a personal, like smaller type feel, I think. Yeah. Did they, I don't know if I know this, did they like come to you and seek you out or was it mutual? How did that How did we find each other? Um, I was actually eating at Boca. It was after I found out I was going to the finals for Top Chef, but I had like, five months before we filmed the finale. Um, so I just had nothing better to do besides just go around and eat and stuff. So my friend, Jesse Oloroso, who owns Black Dog Gelato, she and I were at Boca restaurant just having dinner and Rob and Kevin came over to the table to say hi. And they're like, do you want to come next door to have a drink? Um, they're very Rico Suave, I always say. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. <laughs> so Jesse and I went over there and they just kind of asked if I'd want to do a restaurant with them. And it was this whole back and forth thing for a little while. I said no at first because I was working on a restaurant with another friend of mine. Um, but that project kind of moved to the point where we were getting our lawyers and moving forward with the space. And I started thinking, shoot, I'm like the one that knows more about owning a restaurant in this duo because I had owned my own restaurant before meeting Rob and Kevin. Um, and I thought, I think it was like the best decision. I have one of those weird quick things that clicked. I was like, I need to be with people that actually know more about being a restaurateur than I do. Oh, smart. So I can just do my piece of it. And so, yeah, I like ended that and just went back to Rob and Kevin. I was like, yeah, let's do it. That's cool. Very cool. In terms of like you taking risks or risks in the kitchen, how important do you think it is to take risks? I feel like now with me and in my restaurants, it's become kind of part of our bit is like not just putting something so simple and clean. And, you know, when you go to restaurants and have like a beautiful plate of food, that's just like it's well executed. 
there's nothing you can say negative about it, but you don't walk away like really remembering anything. You're not like, wow, how do they think to do that? And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I, you know, I probably can't execute some things as well as like many chefs that just have beautifully, beautiful flavored food. And maybe to cover up my lack of being able to cook things perfectly. No, I'm just kidding. I think like more of my bit is to celebrate like fun flavors that I like come across by reading about things around the world and such. Taking influences like that and kind of putting unique sort of pops of flavor that might be unexpected. Like something, that's what I think, I was mentioning how Jeremy mentioned, he's like, how do you always know to put that one thing? It's kind of this one unexpected thing that kind of balances it in a way that you wouldn't really think of. I think that's just become sort of the way that my brain works. And now I think when I'm making new dishes for the restaurant, I kind of think what kind of makes it a little bit different and what kind of makes it fit into that. And sometimes mold. like that, does that not work? Sometimes you add something you're like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. What did I eat? I feel like that happened not too, I can't remember what I put in my mouth. Like it was like last week or something. I think I was trying fish with something and I put, you know, you put two things in your mouth thinking it's going to be good. And I was like, oh, <laughs> um, oh it actually, well, we're working on this omakase style tasting up here at Kaba that's going to be on Saturday. We're going to do like just some seatings at the ceviche bar and me and my fish cutter, Robert, he loves talking about fish. He used to work at Mamataro. We're going to just do a little tasting menu. And I found these bags of cocoa nibs that I brought back from meal in Peru. They were sitting in my box and back. I forgot about them. And I still think I can turn them into something yummy to go with fish, but I just kind of like popped a piece of like fresh bonito in my mouth, which is a really intense fish. And then like threw some cocoa nibs in my mouth and I was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> all right, that did not go as planned. Yeah. I definitely need to do something more with this. I was just trying to see if it was like the could spark an idea. Yeah. So you, you were a swimmer. Do you still swim a little bit, right? I swam this morning, yeah. Are you competitive in general? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a word that people would probably use yeah. to describe me. <laughs> if you remind them of that, I'm very competitive. I think, yeah, I still swim on a swim team, although now with Ernie, it's just like my time is not really allowing me to be as on the competitive side of swimming, so now I'm just doing it just for to be in shape. But I think that because I was a competitive swimmer growing up and I always wanted to be in the Olympics and I didn't get to be, I just watched that movie Nadia again the other night. Yeah. Did you ever see the movie I don't Nadia? Think I've seen it. It's like the world's perfect first perfect 10. She got the first perfect 10 when she did the uneven bars at the Olympics in 1976 when I was born. I've watched that movie like 20 times and I hadn't watched it since I was little because we had it on beta. But I was like at home the other night for some odd reason. I was like, I'm going to look and see if I can find Nadia on Netflix, which of course I found it or I think I had to buy it, I don't know, for like $2.99. And I watched it and I was like crying at the end because when she gets the perfect 10, because I just like have this whole thing where I just always wish I could be in the Olympics or, or like at the end of Pitch Perfect when they have that whole like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, so it comes together. It's just so amazing. And they, I like get very emotional when people like do their best at things and like totally crush it. And I think that's just my competitive side. So I either want to be a competitive, like in the Olympics for swimming or just like a performer of singing and win some sort of singing competition, I guess. But that makes me want to be good at this because this is what I do. Okay. So, <laughs> so competition for plus crazy busy restaurants. I'm not going to go, well, maybe I'll go through some of your accolades. There's like a ton, but James Beard Awards, Food and Wine Best New Chef Award, Top Chef winner, Iron Chef winner. Did you ever want to give up? Yeah. I, and I'm very sad. They're not doing Iron Chef battles anymore. I'm sad and happy at the same time. Sad because it was kind of cool, but happy because it was extremely stressful. And I remember at the last, one of the last battles we did, I think it was battle, it was like a 
tuna. It was either the tuna or the beef battle, but well, the beef one was really cool. It made this yummy beef ribeye ice cream that was delicious. Interesting. And I just did it for an event, and I was like, this really is delicious. I don't know if it can go on a menu, though. It's, so not, it's like a strange dessert. But I just remember after the like time ended, I like leaned over, and I was like down, and I started crying a little bit because, one, I thought we lost, which we didn't. I never lost a battle. <laughs> but... <laughs> Just to uh, make sure you know that. I have a uh, follow-up question. <laughs> but I I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be an Iron Chef anymore. Um, because you just feel like as the Iron Chef, like you're supposed to win, you know? And like, that's why I remember when I went on Iron Chef, not as an Iron Chef, when I was younger, we went against, it was me and my team and we went against uh, Michael Simon. So it was really awesome to beat him later in life. But he we lost. And I remember coming back, I was so upset. I was like, I'm not promoting I was on it. I'm like so embarrassed to like, uh, Jan who like, sometimes he's like this nice little, like grumpy, like voice of reason. He's like, that's why it's called iron chef, not iron challenger. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. So you don't sound competitive. (laughs) Um, uh, okay. So like these competition shows, do you get nervous going into them or do you kind of know, like you like their competition shows, like you're like, I need to freaking win this. Do, do you know you're going to like kick ass? Or, you know what I mean? Like, do you go into Iron Chef and you're like, you're let's this? go. Yeah. No. Like, what about Top Chef? Like, so did you think you were going to get kicked off early or was like, was it a surprise every week you won? Every time that I won, and I remember Lisa, who was on my season, there was this one episode, and I, I remember, I think I was in the top three for this one, but it was at the Police Academy, which I now live like a block away from, but at the time I had no idea what the Police Academy in Chicago was. I didn't know where we were, but we went there and we had to make lunch for them, and I made this soup. And not that many people chose it to eat for lunch, because like, who's going to pick the soup? But it, it was tasty, like it had all the layers of flavor and this and that, and I was like, we're in the van on the way back to judge's table, and I was like, I'm going to go home, soup is terrible and Lisa's like will you shut up she's like it was delicious I tasted it like you always say this and then you always win just shut up and I was like oh ouch do you think it's really bad or is that like your your mechanism like I know people who it's like it's use... not fishing for compliment well you know what I mean like, like some people say yeah. that like because they want you to tell them that it's good like some people are like I'm just gonna go with the bad or the negative so if it is positive I'll be surprised but did you really think it was no bad? I really yeah. think it is yeah it's like when people, yeah, they're like, does this look terrible? And you're like, no, that looks awesome. You know what I mean? They just wanted you to say that. Right. Uh, <laughs> so it's not that. You're like, no, this soup that. sucked. Like you yes. thought it sucked. <laughs> it's just, I doubt myself a lot. But yeah, going into, I mean, Top Chef for sure. I just, every time I just tried to make things that weren't gross. So I wouldn't get set home. But I was very surprised by the outcome. I'm all over the place. So if you doubt yourself and you're putting a new dish on the menu, how do you put a new dish on the menu if you're doubting it? Or by the time you put it on, are, are you like, okay, I feel good about it? It's kind of, I mean, it's so silly. So like a girl on the go, if I'm putting a new dish on, I'll put it together. I'll taste it with my sous chefs. Now I'm actually comfortable enough with like some of them that like I want their, them to give comments and like we'll talk about it. But I have to get very comfortable if they say something negative, I don't get upset. Well, it depends unless I think it's really good. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> and then I let it sink in. And I'm like, they're right. We should do something like that. But then once it even gets to the point, and this always happens in like a day, I don't like spend a week working on a dish. I really should. I really should spend more time on these things. But I just kind of like come in with an idea. We throw it together. We put it on and it just throws everybody for a loop for a few days. But I'll put it in front of the servers and I'll just walk over. I'm like, all right, guys, here's 
you know, I don't know, here's the new walleye set. Like this is Friday. There's some squash. Here's these three sauces. And then I just walk away because I don't want to hear their comments because uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like that. And then I'm like, Cody, find out if they liked it or not. That's really funny. It's so ridiculous. Like after 10 years of having girl to go open that I'm that self-conscious. That's so funny. <laughs> it's silly. What would you say is your biggest failure or hardest thing you've had to do in the industry? I'm like, in the industry, good. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, people always say that, like, it's like a cop-out answer to be like, well, you just learn from your failures, so nothing's a failure. I mean, my first restaurant was fine. I had to, I sold it after a few years because I was physically, I felt like I was failing at like running a restaurant at such a young age and I didn't really know what the heck I was doing. But if I hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have got on Top Chef and then everything wouldn't have happened. So it's hard to like, you know, be upset about that or anything. Who made you go on Top Chef? They... They called the restaurant. I was at Scylla and I used to answer the phones in the morning and like firm reservations and stuff. So I answered the phone and they were like, hey, this is Top Chef. Do you want to come in on Saturday? And I had actually just sold my restaurant to Takashi. Like I had just gotten to the point where he was going to buy it. We were like doing all the paperwork, all this fun legal mumbo jumbo. And I was like, well, I got to work on Saturday. And they're like, did you just hear what we said? Like, just come down and have this interview. So I was like, ah, fine. So I went down in the interview and then these two people from the Magical Elves, those are the producers. They came and hung out and like we all went out to a bar together and had this, this really fun night. I had to pretend that they were like friends from LA and it was just super fun. And I was like, oh, that was fun. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. It just kind of like seemed like it could be an interesting thing to do, I guess. And I just sold my restaurant. I wasn't going to have anything better to do. So that's interesting. Yeah. It was just, if the timing hadn't been just as it was, then I wouldn't have done it. I live right around the corner from that spot and it would have been nice to be there. But I guess we wouldn't have had all of these new spots potentially. So is there a chef out there right now, maybe in Chicago or anywhere that you like admire or have your eye on and say to yourself, like, wow, I really love their style or I love what they're doing. Um, I mean, I think there's lots of people in different ways. I think like Jason Vincent does like, I like how he's very casual, but not casual at the same time, like kind of in a way that I am. But he always has like some fun, crunchy thing to put on his dishes. And I love that too. Like we actually have this puffed rice that's on all of our menus now, but he, I learned it from him. I was at a Monteverde dinner and he puffed this black rice and I was like, what temperature did you do that at? I love this. And so we turned it into like, it's for a furikake and like we use it on all sorts of stuff. Like, thank you, Jason, for that one. I'm always looking for like this new, a new crunchy because I like things crunchy. I think there's, yeah, it's like each time I, there's so many different chefs that have like, I'll enjoy their food like in general, but like one maybe like thing from them that like, to, like when I go to Haisu for dinner, I mean, there's just like a joint love of fish sauce, you know, like they, you can like drink a bottle of it when you go there for dinner, which is my favorite thing ever. By the way, so you did the recipe for cook tracks and you did the, the pancake tasty Kimchi. The tasty, eggy, yummy yeah. thingy. And you did the fish sauce. And it wound up being this like long bit where we went and we like digressed into fish sauce. And I had, uh, I like, had these elaborate conversations with the producers like, this is great information. Do we keep all this fish sauce talking or edit it and maybe move it to like a bonus? And <laughs> like, because you just went off into like fish sauce land. And I was like, I love this, but someone may be standing there like waiting for the next step. Right. Um, They're like anyway, too much fish sauce. It was really funny. You can't have too much fish sauce though. <laughs> It's a whole yeah. bit. So the crunchy thing, yeah. So I have you to thank for my wife. Every time we eat something that doesn't have a crunch, she like looks at me. She's like, it needs a crunch on top. I'm like, <laughs> thanks, Steph. Well, you can just come and get... I'm trying to work on these crunchy toppings for my sauce and spice line where it like 
it's just, I basically have to like build my own factory to puff rice. Oh, that's funny. It's very hard to like turn something into a bottle format that you make in a restaurant. I mean, especially like some of our crunchy toppings, but it's basically like these crunchy spice mixes that we make that are so delicious. I just want to figure out a way to share them with the world so that Katie doesn't ma- get mad. You just grab it out of the yeah. cupboard and put it on top Seriously. and everybody's happy. Hey everybody, so sorry to interrupt. Wanted to really quickly share a little more about Cook Tracks because, well, we just mentioned it. And if you're familiar, a heads up, we are in production on some more episodes of Cook Tracks right now. But if you're not familiar, you may have seen this pop up into your Beyond the Plate podcast feed if you subscribe to the podcast. Long story short, Cook Tracks is a brand new way to cook. It is a audio recipe cook along of sorts. You can follow at Cook Tracks on Instagram or visit cooktracks.com to get the recipe and a list of ingredients. So basically in each episode, a chef or culinary personality will be right alongside you, actually in your ear, ha, taking you step by step through a dish or meal in real time. So you're going to get some tips and good stories to keep you entertained while you're upping your cooking game a little bit. You don't need a recipe and you don't need to pause and press play and watch a video and all that. Everything is in real time. So we currently have six episodes with some of the best chefs and cooks that we know. Rachel Ray has a couple, Gail Simmons, Rocco Desperto, Stephanie Izard, who you're currently listening to, and Jimmy Papadopoulos from Chicago. So listen on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on and let us know what you think. All right, back to Steph. Okay, so this uh, next segment we like to call, what would Jamie Bissonnette ask Stephanie Iser? <laughs> Is it always Jamie Bissonnette or did you grab, because he's like my, I call him my brother from another mother, like yeah. in the kitchen. This, this, we just are calling this segment that <laughs> okay. for this episode. <laughs> and Jamie asks... How did you become such a pro at beer chugging? (laughs) It just came naturally. (laughs) I was just talking about that. Someone asked me um, something that my parents were proud of or something like that. And if you go to my dad's house, there's, I think he probably still has the picture sitting there because I think it's like this awesome picture of him and my mom and like their arms are up and they're like, (gasps) it looks like, it looks like I just won the Olympics, you know, like they look that excited in this picture. And if you're like, why are you guys so excited in that picture? They're like, our daughter just won the beer chugging contest at Club Med. Like it was like this Club Med Olympics thing. Oh, that's amazing. So yeah, I don't know. It's just like a natural thing. I just chugged some water the other day and my, somebody was like, wow. And I was like, I'm just really good at it. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> oh, hilarious. Well, thank, thanks, Jamie. For, for those of you who don't know, Jamie's an, a great chef with restaurants in Boston and Boston, New, New York. York. And oh, like, like Dubai. Dubai and, and in like Thailand. Yeah. Craziness. <laughs> Super cool. Okay. So next part, social impact, giving back, stuff like that. I think you know this, maybe not, but one of the parts I love about this podcast is how chefs give back because I always say you guys, people, if other than my mom who listened to this podcast probably hear this all the time that I, I I always say chefs can do a different event for charity every night of the week like truly so why do you think chefs focus on like or have focus on that on giving back or supporting causes I think I mean it's an for us it's not that hard and we can make a big impact I mean and we can help raise a lot of money by just cooking some food and just going and talking to people so it's it's been made very easy by those walk around events, which I didn't really realize that Share Strength had kind of launched those, that they would started those events 
that we've all been to. I mean, I've never actually, I think I've only gone to one as a guest where you walk around and you get little samplings of food and like talk to all the chefs and it's super fun party type of thing. I mean, for us, those aren't, at least for me with my restaurants and I can just have other people prep the food. No, it's not that big of a deal. I'm like, hey guys, I need 600 pieces of that for Friday. Cool, thanks. They're, of course, they're like, Stephanie, it's Thursday. Thanks a lot. And I'm like, oh, whoops, sorry. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I could be more organized about it. But I know back in the day when I had Scylla, and I started getting asked to do these things. I didn't really understand the whole world yet. And I didn't, I would say yes to every single one because it was also a really good way to get my name out there. And I think that that's sort of like the duo thing. It's like when events ask us to do their events, they always give some sort of thing. They're like, this many people are going to be there and going to see this and try to tempt you by that. So I think there ends up being like a dual purpose where you're like, oh, that's great for my restaurants. But now I also get to give back. And now I think that I understand it all a little bit more. And I've sort of learned more. Now I want to like understand where the money's going and like sort of see like what impact it's making and understand the charitable side of it more. And it's less about I don't think Girl on the Goat's going to necessarily get a huge impact of new reservations after I do an event. That's not why I'm doing it anymore. It's more like, oh, I can really help with Share Our Strength. You know, No Kid Hungry is a great organization that I'm, myself and many chefs are like super proud to be part of. And it's also a really well-organized organization. So yeah, I don't know. Long story is short is it's just really a great thing that we can give back by just doing what we do normally. I remember you and I had that whole long conversation because I wanted to start my own organization. And I still, you know, have this side of me where that would be amazing. I would love to be able to help. And I each day have these different ideas of things and would love to be able to help kids more and things like that. But I think for now, just making sure that I partner up with organizations that are doing truly great things, which there are tons of them and you can't say yes to every single one. I mean, you just can't be everywhere. So I think just picking organizations that you can really get behind and trying to make a big impact with one or two or three or four or five organizations um, instead of, you know, saying yes to like 50 of them. So how do you choose? You mentioned No Kid Hungry, which is mentioned a lot from chefs. They recently had their uh, Taste of the Nation event here, which you were at behind your table, handing out your dumplings. Yeah, which were incredible. And there were a lot of chefs there, but also a lot of chefs had their sous chef or a line cook there dishing out the food. And I'm not taking anything away from those chefs because they have a life and everyone has a life. But you were there. Like, you know, arguably or not arguably, you're one of the top chefs in the city and you were standing behind that table giving that away. So how do you choose, like, did Share Strength find you or are you interested in what they do or how, how do you choose, how do you choose which events you do? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. That one was, so it was on my calendar and I knew it was coming up, but my team, they're like, well, you don't have to be there. I'm like, of course I'm going to be there. Like it's for Share Strength. Like this is of course I'm going to be there. Like I wouldn't have had it any other way. I wouldn't have not been sitting at my table unless for some reason, you know, something came up, like I had to go to something with Ernie or like I had to go to, you know, do some thing in another city or something. Um, and there's some, sometimes with some smaller organizations, I guess, just because I don't know enough about them. If, if I just can't be there, I'm not there, but I try not to say yes to charitable events that I can't personally be at. I just feel like part of it is that like, People are coming to say hello. You know, I think that they're buying those tickets in hopes of meeting a bunch of chefs. And um, yeah, of course, at those events, sometimes the chefs like leave their table and they're out, um, you know, drinking and eating and just having a good time. Um, I've always just like staying on my side of the table, (laughs) just saying hi to people and being one of the people. I always garnish and talk to people. Uh, It's just, I mean, for years, you know, since Scylla, so what, shoot, I was 27 
That's a long since yeah. then. Well, being on the flip side of that, like I've organized some of those events and there's people who I, I get what you're saying, but there's people who are like, who cares if Stephanie can't come? Let's just have her restaurant and someone else. I'm like, that's nice. I get it. Like I get seeing Girl in the Goat or, or any of your places on a sign, but like you just said at the same time, it's even better to yeah. see you. Yeah. There's definitely, I can think of like two events. I remember Aaron Tabo went and did one for me once and then another one. And I feel like I felt, I think I had to be at a catering or something. That's why I wasn't there. But yeah, I felt bad. I was like, oh, I kind of like, I feel like I'm letting down that organization by not just being there. Yeah. Do you, does your, is your staff like aware of these at all? Or are they just like kind of coming to help sometimes or do you instill any of this? It like, depends on the, I mean, it depends on the staff member. There's definitely some people that want to help more and give back more. And like, there's this, uh, Rick Bayless has this cool organization where these kids get to come and do a really quick culinary program basically. And then they come and work in your restaurants. And I just had a meeting about it probably a month ago. And I was talking to the ladies and I was like, you know, I have to be honest, like my time is not going to allow me to give hundred percent to this. I was like, but I think my, I have my, one of my pastry chefs, Faith, she's like great with kids. She's a great teacher. She's all the things that make her perfect for this. And she got super excited. She's gone there. She's met with them. She went and taught a pastry class to the kids. And now she and I are going to go together and interview and figure out which interns we're going to hire. But I knew that it's something that would interest her. So I think it's different cooks or sous chefs expressing that they want to give back and making sure to like involve those people rather than just kind of, you know, it's sort of, they have to ask. There's so many different people that work in our restaurants and not everybody necessarily cares and that's fine. They have other things going on, but there's definitely some people that truly want to learn more about it. That's cool. All right. Speed round, your favorite. (laughs) (laughs) And then one closing question. What'd you have for dinner last night? I went to the Celine Dion concert last night really? at the United Center. So I had tacos at this little goat. That's funny. How was the concert? It was good. I wanted to just like check that off my list. You yeah, know, like totally. Very iconic. I, the songs that I know that she, I mean, she can belt out. That's she crazy. has an amazing, amazing voice, yeah. I will say. Yeah. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Ooh. I, get, I love when the, like some smoked goat comes out of the mm. oven, that smoker smell. Yeah. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Ah. Uh. I guess on the other side of that, when the meat's not smoked, just walking into the restaurant on like raw goat or raw pig head <laughs> arrival day and you can walk down in the kitchen and you're like, hmm, mm, raw wait. meat day. Yeah. <laughs> can't wait till that's cooked. What pisses you off in the kitchen? That's such a long list of things. <laughs> Give me seven. Yeah. I'm just, just kidding. Just not being clean. Yeah. Yeah. What makes you happy? When I see someone cleaning. There you go. <laughs> if you were not a chef, what would you be? Ooh, I still probably would love to be a scuba instructor. Nice. Yeah. Do you scuba? When you I get... used to scuba when I had more free time. Yeah. I love it. I love like, when you see like a sea turtle just chilling underwater, you're like, oh my God, that looks so awesome. That's I love cool. you. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have any chef cook for you, who would it be? I think, and you mentioned his name before, and so maybe he's just on top of my mind, but Jose Andres is just somebody who's so remarkable and like all of us giving back that just having him cook for me, but then also just like, he would talk for probably like six hours totally, and I would learn so much. Yeah. I tried to, when we had him for the season finale of season one, I tried to say like, oh, I only need 30 or 45 minutes, even though I like an hour. And they're like, we'll schedule you for 45. And I was in his office for two and a half hours. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, at the James Beard Awards, when he like had a speech that I was like, okay, 
that's long, but yeah. all very, everybody's like, <gasps> yeah, you know, like totally. couldn't, couldn't not pay attention. Very captivating. All right. In closing, there's a 19 year old culinary or hospitality school student somewhere right now that wants to be the next Stephanie Isard. Maybe at CIA, maybe at Johnson and Wales, maybe at California Culinary Academy, maybe at Art Institute of Scottsdale or wherever. What advice would you give to them? Take your time. I, I actually have a kid on my staff that said to me, he said, I want to be a, um, I want to be a famous chef or whatever, or a, but a celebrity chef. I'm like, what's that word that people use to describe people sometimes? Um, and I was like, all right, how about we Did first? Did he say that? Yeah. Okay. And I almost like freaked out at the text. I was like, what? And I was like, let's talk when I see you. Was he, is he a, like a line cook or was he's a cook here? Okay. He's really awesome. Um, and he could get there, but I was like, why don't we focus on making you a really good cook first? Then you become a really good sous chef. Then you become a really good chef. And if you happen to like be this small percentage that gets this like interesting opportunity, then you can try to be a celebrity chef, but I, you have to take your time. I just had that happen. One of my cooks who's a little older than 19, but his early twenties at little goat. He's like, I want to be a sous chef. I was like, okay but let's like, let's do it at more of a turtle pace and you can like soak up so many things along the way. So I think just not rush. I think I did rush and maybe people, so I set a bad example. I was like, made myself a chef at 27, but I still look back and wish that I had cooked for more people because I would like today I'm gonna work on this octopus terrine. I've never made an octopus terrine. I just haven't. I never worked for anybody that did it because up until 27, I just didn't work for anybody that made an octopus terrine. And then I only worked for myself and I never wanted to make one until today because we have some extra octopus around. So I think it's take your time and work for chefs that you admire. Don't just take jobs because you want a certain amount of money or because it's close to your house or take jobs that are very for specific reasons. And, you know, just learn from people that you really want to learn from. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Thank, Thank you for you. my therapy session. That yeah, was great. You're welcome. I feel ready to tackle my day. This was great. I think I may have, I probably said this to you once before, but it still holds true because I still tell it to people when they ask, who's exciting right now in Chicago? And I don't mean this negatively, but Girl in the Goat's been, how long? Nine years? We'll be 10 in July. We'll be 10 years in July. And like, I don't want to say like it shouldn't be exciting because it's almost 10 years, but you've done a really good job at keeping it exciting and all of your restaurants and everyone's like why and I was like and we talked about this because you take risks you don't just execute to be safe I, th I think you push the limits like with like yourself and your cooks and the people dining in your establishments and 100% of the people aren't going to love 100% of your dishes but they're going to remember them they're going to be exciting and they may want to try more so as I said, I think I mentioned this to you before, but thanks for keeping Chicago um, food exciting. Oh, thank you. A short quote on picking a business partner before the opening of one of her early restaurants, Girl in the Go. Quote, I need to be with people that know more about being a restaurateur than I do. End quote. thought that was really important because I remember when I worked in a restaurant in Los Angeles, the executive chef there always said he needs to surround himself by people that are just as good or better than him. Anyhow, thanks again to Chef Stephanie Izard. Find more on her at stephanieizard.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on Twitter at btplatepodcast and Facebook. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. 
Martins was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country in 1955, and they are the number one branded hamburger bun in America. As I always like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. What am I loving these days about Martins? Something that I talked about on an earlier season, the inside out grilled cheese. Take one of their rolls, flip it inside out, butter, or here's a tip, use mayo on the cut halves, and then put those cut halves side down in a skillet and put the cheese on there. Really, really good. Anyhow, here's what I also love about Martins. Their mission encompasses more than just baking great bread and buns and rolls. They believe in giving back to their community and they do it in a big way. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support literally hundreds of charitable organizations, such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief efforts, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need, um, close to their baking facilities and abroad. So to learn more about Martins, visit their website at potatorolls.com or follow them on social media at potatorolls. Martins, we thank you. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Eaton, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Tom Osborne. Our music has been composed by Goldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Join us next week for Just the Plate when Stephanie Izard breaks down her version of one of Peru's most traditional dishes, the Lomo Saltado. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.